And last week was kind of a deep dive into what the scriptures have to say about self-control. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's a God-given ability to control ourselves, to choose the right thing even when we don't feel like it. It comes from the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And today I want to get to some practical steps of how we actually implement self-control in our lives. I'm going to give us uh, five principles that are going to help us grab hold of self-control. Without self-control, we will never be truly healthy kingdom people. You cannot separate the two from each other. We can finally become healthy by embracing self-control. Some of you have been chasing health for decades now. Maybe in the physical realm, maybe in the financial realm, emotionally, mentally, whatever it may be. We've been chasing after health and it seems so elusive. It slips through our fingers. Just when we get charged up and this year is going to be different and this week is going to be different, it all kind of shifts back. We end up right back where we were before. We've been chasing health and missing it. We can finally become healthy people by embracing self-control. Now, to embrace self-control, I believe we need to apply five principles. The first principle is this. We have to reimagine the sacred. What I mean by that is this. I've touched on this a little bit uh, in the past few weeks. But kingdom life is a whole life thing. We have this, this bad habit of breaking things up into sacred and secular. The things that God cares about and the things that God doesn't really care about. The things that are God's business and the things that are my business. And we kind of draw this line through our life and we go, these are sacred. These are holy. These are things where like I need to pray about and I need Jesus' help and I need to be transformed. We use all these powerful words. But then the rest of this, that's just work. That's just my family when I come home. I need to like be good at it, but that's just kind of my own thing. There's the Sunday things and the rest of the week things. We have this terrible habit of drawing this line in the sand. These things are sacred. These things are secular. When the truth that we find in Scripture is that all of our lives are sacred. Every arena of our lives is sacred. One of the reasons that we have struggled so much to grow in health, to grow in self-control is because there's whole areas of our lives that if we're not careful, we've detached from the presence of God and we've just made that my thing that I need to work at. And we, get, we feel guilty and we start to just avoid those things because, oh, I messed up again. And we think God really only cares about when I read the Bible, when I pray, coming to church. Those are the things He cares about and the rest is just me. It is such a dangerous lie. We have to begin to reimagine our lives as completely sacred. Every minute of your day, every area of your life, every arena, God calls sacred. He wants to walk with you in. He wants to grow you in those areas. There is no sacred and secular. For the believer, it's all sacred. I read a passage from, I, I introduced this book last, uh, last week, Your Future Self Will Thank You. I'm going to read a couple passages out of it again today. Uh, the author says this, 
speaking about the benefits that come from, from including Jesus in all of life. He says, all too often I miss out on those benefits. I fail to consider what I'm doing through a spiritual lens. It's not that I pursue bad goals. I just have a tendency to leave God out of it. I go to church on Sunday, maybe even attend a prayer meeting or a Bible study during the week, and then I go back to living my, quote, regular life. Rarely do I pause to reflect on how everything I do, from attending meetings to returning emails to teaching my daughter how to ride a bike, connects to a spiritual reality. It's a little frightening to consider how good I am at compartmentalizing life into sacred and secular categories. I'm starting to realize this is a dangerous dichotomy. If I'm not careful, I can live as a functional atheist, blind to the supernatural light illuminating the world. I need to train my imagination to see the eternal dimensions of my everyday life. Everything we do is a spiritual act of worship. Everything we do is an opportunity to connect with the Father or to walk away and do it on our own. We have to be so careful about drawing these lines in our lives. Self-control comes through connectedness to the Father. If there's an area where you are lacking self-control, and hear me, I'm not saying if there's an area where you're not yet perfect, but if there's an area where you're not growing in self-control, it's probably because in that area you've disconnected with the Father. That's an area where you've just said, I need to work harder. I need to white-knuckle it more. I just need to try again, pull myself up by my bootstraps. And the Father is going, if you would just invite me in. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Remember, we looked at it last week, John 15. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branch. You just stay connected to me, and you're going to bear much fruit. If there's an area where we're lacking self-control, we've probably drawn that line and gone, this is secular. This is a me thing. And we're just going to keep tripping over ourselves. We need to stop and reimagine every situation in life. This is a sacred moment. This is an opportunity to invite the Father in and to grow in the fruits of the Spirit at work, at home, with my hobbies, on a Sunday, on a Monday. It's an opportunity to connect with the Father and grow in self-control. Does this make sense? Notify your faces, guys. I need something. Okay? All right. Thank you, Chris, for the thumbs up. So the first principle, reimagine the sacred. The second one is this, know your limits. Know your limits. Know your areas of weakness so that you can prepare for them. There's a, a story of a man named Odysseus in Greek mythology. How many of you had to read the Odyssey when you were in high school? Okay, like six of you? Okay. The rest of you either didn't go to high school or you're lying to me. The story of the Odyssey, uh, essentially, uh, the story like of the Battle of Troy with the Trojan horse and that whole thing, that's kind of part one. The Odyssey is the story of how a guy named Odysseus gets home after that whole battle. And on his way home, there are all of these uh, monsters and dangers that he has to battle just to get home. And one of the most dangerous uh, encounters that he has is with the Island of the Sirens. There is this island with these monsters who look like beautiful women to entice sailors in. And the most dangerous piece to the sirens is the siren song. They sing this song that when men would hear it, they would just lose all self-control. They would veer off course, head to the island because they were so enchanted. And once there, the sirens would kill them. They were monsters, but with this facade of beauty. 
And so Odysseus is heading home with his men. They're, they're on a ship sailing, and he knows he has to go past the island of the Sirens. But he knows, if I just go in there unprepared, I'm going to suffer the same fate everyone else has. I'm going to lose self-control. I'm going to head right into the island, and that's the end of us. And so what he tells his men is, we have to take some extreme measures. He tells them, I want you to tie me to the mast, bind me hand and foot, so that no matter what I do, I cannot get out of this. And then he tells them, you guys put beeswax in your ears so that you can't hear their song. And when they start singing, no matter what I do, no matter how I beg and plead, no matter what I say, do not cut me loose. Because if you do, it will be the death of us all. And so his men tie him to the mast. They put beeswax in their ears and they go about just ignoring him until they get past the the island of the sirens and they live. And it's just another part of the story. He didn't even have to go battle them. He knew his limit. He knew if I treat this like just another day, we're all dead. Self-control is gone. Here's the point of that. Giving into temptation has extreme consequences There are times when we need to take some extreme steps. Let's look scripturally at some of those extreme consequences. In the book of James, chapter 1, he says this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. James is going, look, these temptations, these these things that the enemy is using to entice you away from the Father, away from health, away from the life that you know you should be leading, they're not just, oops, I made a mistake. These are things that bring about death in your life. Death of relationships, broken relationship with the Father, physical death. He says these temptations are not to be taken lightly because they lead to death. Giving into temptation has extreme consequences. There are times that we need to take extreme steps. Uh, part of my story is before I became a believer, I was addicted to pornography. Uh, about a decade of my life, just given over to it. And when I came to Jesus, that was one of the first things uh, that he dealt with me on. And so I got some men around me, and I was like, I, I don't know what to do. How do, we, how do we defeat this? And one of them just said, well, like, what's the main avenue that you use for looking at pornography? And I said, well, the computer. The Internet was brand new then. There was no such thing as cell phones, and being able to look things up on your phone was not a thing. You had to actually sit at a computer. And they said, what is it? I said, it's my computer. And they said, okay, so what can we do? And the only thing I knew, I have to get rid of my computer. For two years, I lived without a computer. Did I, like, I had to go out of my way and like, borrow somebody's computer, go to somebody's house to send an email, to do whatever else. Like, it was inconvenient. But I was well aware that giving into this temptation will cause death in my life. I have to take some extreme steps in order to avoid it. Am I suggesting everyone gets rid of their cell phones and gets rid of their computers? Like, no. Do some of you need to? Maybe. I don't know. If we really view this temptation, this sin, as seriously as the scriptures tell us to, we may have to take some pretty serious steps. What does that look like for you? 
a smaller uh, example. I love ice cream. Like, more than I should, I love ice cream. Amen. Amen. That'll liven you up. And here's what I know. If there is ice cream in my house, I will eat it. I don't care what time of day or night it is. When the fancy hits me, I will eat it. And so guess what step we take most of the time in our house? No ice cream. Kim calls me from the store and goes, do we want ice cream in our house this week? Typically, my answer is no. Sometimes I say yes. And by Tuesday, I'm like, oh, I'm out of ice cream. But I've just learned the best way to deal with this. I have to know my limitations. If it's there, I'm going to eat it. So the best thing that I can do is not even have it in the house. It can be big things. It can be small things. But if these temptations really do have the kind of consequences Scripture says, we need to take them real seriously. We need to flee temptation. Many times in Scripture, we're not told stand and fight it. We're told flee, run away. Uh, The author, again, says this, Battling temptation is usually a bad idea. It's easy to imagine that if we can fend off temptation once, we can do it again. But we're often weaker the second time around. Perhaps that's why scripture urges us to flee temptation rather than stand and fight. Of course, we can't always flee temptation. Sometimes we have to stand and fight. There's a reason the Bible instructs us to put on the armor of God and to take up the sword of the Spirit. But whenever possible, avoiding it altogether is wise. Petitioning God to lead us not into temptation is a better plan than trying to stare down sin. Timothy says that, or Paul says this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Just flee it. Just run away. If you know that sin is coming, avoid it at all costs. When you can't, put on the armor of God and do battle. But that is a last-ditch effort. The first thing they teach Alec when they're trying to get clean I don't care how many miles out of your way you have to go. Don't go anywhere near a bar. Don't even drive past it. Because if you go in, the the way to overcome alcoholism isn't sitting in a bar staring at it going, not drinking you. I hate you. Guess what happens every single time in that scenario? Temptation wins out. Avoid it. Go out of your way. Take a new route home so that you don't even see a liquor store or a bar. Because sometimes even just seeing that sign is enough of a trigger. Do whatever you have to do, as inconvenient as it needs to be, to flee temptation. Because it will kill you. So the first two principles, reimagine the sacred, know your limits. And the third one we're just going to go through real quick because I've already talked on it for about a month. Get community. Look at that, uh, that same passage in Timothy. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. It doesn't say, hey, you just do this all by yourself. You run your own race. It says, flee these evil things. Pursue the life God is calling you to, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Get community. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, we've looked at this passage a number of times, and man, we can look at it every week. It's so rich. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. 
We need each other. We need accountability. We need encouragement. We need someone who's going to ask us those hard questions. We need someone that's going to celebrate when things go well. We need somebody that's going to remind us of what God says about us when we feel down in the dumps because we tripped and fell. We need community. Kingdom life is life together. You cannot do it alone. The author says this, We tend to think of self-control as a solitary virtue. It's just me squaring off against temptation. But the people we spend time with dramatically affect our ability to regulate our behavior. Hundreds of studies have demonstrated how powerful the effects of peers have been on our behavior. We're actually wired for influence. Our brains are equipped with mirror neurons that help us discern what people around us are thinking and feeling. These specialized neurons enable us to empathize with others and even feel their pain and desires. Of course, when it comes to behavior, this unique ability cuts both ways. Willpower failures are contagious, but so is virtue. You can catch self-control as well as self-indulgence. If we surround ourselves with people, much like Timothy says, that are pursuing the Lord out of a pure heart, this, this virtuous chasing after the Lord, this fleeing of temptation, is contagious. We were created on a like brain science level to be affected by the people that are around us. If we surround ourselves with people pursuing the Lord with us, it's contagious. Get community. The fourth principle is this. Create healthy habits. This is where most of us fall off. This is where the rubber meets the road and it starts to get real difficult. Create healthy habits. Let me read this passage from the author. He says, what did you do today? Did you have a shower? Did you brush your teeth? Did you get dressed? I hope so. Did you make coffee? Did you pack lunches and exercise? Did you drop the kids off? Did you go to work? Did you come home? Did you turn on the TV? What if I told you that you didn't do any of those things because the truth is you didn't? At least, at least not in the sense of doing them with intentional actions or with foresight or, or purpose. You probably did them out of habit. If you could review footage of your average day, for the most part, you would witness a person attentively navigating the world. Or you wouldn't, excuse me, witness a person attentively navigating the world, pausing to make decisions each time they acted. You'd see someone moving about rather seamlessly, performing tasks without hesitation. You would see someone operating largely out of habit. So what exactly is a habit? According to Charles Duhigg, the author of The Power of Habit, a habit is a behavior that starts as a choice and then becomes a nearly unconscious pattern. These unconscious patterns determine a lot of our behavior. A Duke University study found that more than 40% of our actions come from habit rather than decisions. That means nearly half of your actions on any given day take place without much conscious thought. We just do them. They're habits. We need to create the kind of healthy habits that just kick in in our lives. We need to create the kind of thing so that we're not always staring and going, apple or donut, apple or donut, apple or donut. My habits kick in, and I naturally reach for the apple. We're not going, oh no, spend frivolously or save. We've trained ourselves so our natural habits are to make the wise financial choices. Be generous or miserly. We've trained ourselves where generosity is what's coming naturally. 
We need to create healthy habits in our lives. How long does it take to create a habit? Take a stab at it. Yell it out. Two weeks, 21 days. All myths. That's a common thing. It takes 21 days to create a habit. Science proves, no, it doesn't. It takes closer 40 to 60 days, roughly two months to create a habit. Now, again, we're not talking about that thing where, okay, it's just a little bit easier, but that habit where you wake up in the morning and you just go brush your teeth. You don't have to think, what, what should I do with the first five minutes of my day? You just do it. You're thinking about other things, but it's naturally what happens. It takes about 60 days to create those kinds of habits. It's, it's a much slower process than most of us are comfortable with. So we tend to stop short, going, I'm sure I've got it from now. And then a week or two later, we've kind of gone right back to where we were. It's a long process to create healthy habits, but it is so valuable. Think about it. If you could just, almost on autopilot, choose the healthy choices, and it would be the rarity that you have to stop and think about, ooh, do I really want to go for the apple? It was just natural to you. How much healthier would life be in those times? But that doesn't happen quickly. That takes time. And in order to have healthy habits, we have to do something that I wish we didn't have to do. We have to set goals. I am not naturally a goal setter. I am a go from your gut, wing it kind of person. For years, I've thought, if I just know the right choice, if I know apples are better than donuts, I'll just start picking the apple, right? So it's more that I just need to convince myself of how good apples are. But guess what I don't need to convince myself of? How good donuts are. I don't like going through a process. It feels petty to me. I'll just be in real to have to set a goal to, to eat better, to, uh, whether it's in financial health, whether uh, spiritually to confess, to repent. I mean, whatever it may be, to have to set a goal feels like almost unspiritual, right? Shouldn't I just read my Bible and pray and that kind of stuff will just happen naturally? That's not what we find in the scriptures. We need to set some goals. So let me give you a couple criteria for setting goals. Start small. Most of the time what we do is we go, I'm losing 20 pounds. Here we go. Two weeks later, have I lost 20 pounds? Probably gained a little. We, we set these huge goals because we feel like if it's not huge and inspirational, I'm not going to want to do it. And so I'm going to have an hour-long quiet time. That's my goal. And we fail. We start so big that it's kind of, it's intimidating. And we don't even know kind of where to start. How many of you guys have seen the movie What About Bob? Okay, a few of you lucky people. Fantastic movie. Um, I don't know if I can say that. I think so. It's a fantastic movie. Okay, uh, there's this guy named Bob, and Bob has every phobia that you can think of in this movie. Bob is just overwhelmed by life, and it paralyzes him. And so Bob is in with a, a new psychiatrist. He's kind of seen every psychiatrist in town, and he's in with this new one. And the guy's trying to leave on vacation, trying to kind of hurry Bob out. And Bob won't have it. He's like, I can't even make it home. Like the thought of, of this big city and riding a bus, and I can't even make it home. And he's just frozen to his chair. And the psychiatrist has this brilliant thing where he goes, Bob, just take baby steps. Just baby steps out of the office, baby steps onto the elevator, 
baby steps out of the, uh, out of the building, baby steps onto the bus, and Bob is able to grab hold of it because Bob goes, the whole thing, too overwhelming, can't do it, I quit. But just taking the next step, oh, that I can get a hold of. That's something I can do. And so Bob starts taking baby steps. And through the movie, he's able to do things he's never done before, which is where half of the hilarious things come from. Some of you are going to go home and watch What About Bob and go, what is wrong with him? But it's a great movie. Being able to take bite-sized chunks, what it lets us do is build momentum. We have a little bit of victory. And we go, I can do this. I can take another step and another step and another step. So let's take, for instance, that idea of I want to lose 20 pounds. Again, too big, too ambiguous. But what if instead I went, you know what? I've learned from hanging out with my wife. Hang around with her and you'll pick some stuff up, especially when it comes to physical health. One of the main reasons that most of us gain weight, are overweight, eat when we shouldn't eat, I mean, all these different things, is because we're dehydrated. We're going to talk specifically about physical health and we'll hear about some of this stuff. But we are all chronically dehydrated. I, I would venture to say none of us drink as much water as we should. And so your body starts to try to trick yourself. And it's going, okay, they don't understand that I'm thirsty. Maybe if I tell them I'm hungry, they'll eat some things that have water in it and I can kind of take some water that way. And so we just start eating. We're not even hungry. It's just what we do. If you trace it back, it's because we're thirsty. So what if my whole weight loss goal started with this? Drink a glass of water in the morning. It feels dumb, right? What good is one glass of water going to do? But here's the thing. When I drink a glass of water, immediately my stomach's kind of full. So when I come into breakfast, I'm not as ravenously hungry. My brain is now hydrated and I'm able to make better choices when you are dehydrated, you get kind of sluggish and it's hard to make choices. Give your brain some water first thing in the morning and you will be amazed how it sets you up for success in all of these other areas of life. So what if I started my weight loss journey with drink a glass of water? And for two months, that's my whole thing. Drink one glass of water at the beginning of each morning. Eventually, that's just going to become my natural and I'm going to wake up kind of thirsty and I'm going to drink that glass of water and I'm going to be able to make better choices. And I'm not going to need as big a breakfast. And, and now that's just my natural habit. And I'm able to go, what would the next step be? What's the next step? What's the next step? If we take these small steps, set these small goals, and give ourselves time, we're able to accomplish them. We're able to experience actual victory. We get these healthy habits established. And we can move forward to the next one. Uh, what this is called in the... Uh, I don't know if it's psychiatric world or whatever, where smart people talk about things our brains do. Not me. It's called micro-disciplines. We like to set big, huge disciplines. I'm going to run a marathon. Well, maybe I need to start with, for the next two months, I'm going to walk around my block every day. A micro-discipline. These small changes that add up to massive gains over time. This is how we, we actually begin to put self-control into place, one step at a time. So set goals. Start small. One goal at a time. How many of you have, have ever set New Year's resolutions? You want to know the problem with the sentence I just said? The S. Resolutions. 
We think, man, if one healthy goal is good, what would six do? And so we, we take on three, four, five, six goals, and we're going to get after them, and they're typically huge. And what happens by February? We quit, and we're back. One goal at a time. Small, bite-sized, a micro-discipline, and I'm tackling one for the next two months. And then after that, I'll tackle another one for two months. And we go, oh, but it's so slow. That would take so long. So instead, we set these big ones. By the end of February, it's petered out. We've gone back to normal life. What if I could look at it and go, by the end of this year, I will have six healthier habits than I did. It's going to take the whole year. I'm going to have to take them one at a time, and it's going to be small steps. But which one is more beneficial for me come 2021? To have started strong, failed, and now have this new list again? Or to be six steps closer to healthier because I took my time and actually made sure it happened. You see it, right? So now I want to lose 20 pounds, and I'm just picking a number. I can try to lose it in six weeks, or I can go, you know what, over the next three years, and let's just see what happens. Which one is going to move me towards health long-term? Start small, one at a time. Consistency beats flash every time. Having small, consistent movement is going to beat flash in the pan every time. Look, when you open a magazine, when you get online, there's always this new way to lose three inches in four days, to lose 20 pounds in six weeks. And then guess what? Next month, there's another one because that one didn't work. It didn't last. We lost the weight. We went, woo, and then celebrated with some ice cream. And now we're even bigger than we were before. It's this yo-yo effect that happens. Consistency, small movement in the same direction is going to beat flash every single time. It's been proven that let's just, I'm sticking with this example of physical health because most of us see that as an area we need to make some movement in. It's been proven that the longer it takes you to lose the weight, the longer the weight will stay off. We can both lose 20 pounds. You do it in six weeks. I do it in a year. Guess, what, guess who's going to still be 20 pounds lighter two years from now? Statistically, me. Because in that long, slow process, I was building habits that are going to keep carrying me forward. Most of those flash-in-the-pan diets, those get-skinny-quick promises, we lose it, we, but then we spend all the self-control we have, and we binge. And we tend to gain the weight back plus more. And it works like this in every arena of our lives. Consistency beats flash every time. The last one is this, when it comes to setting goals, clear and measurable. If you're going to set a goal, if you're going to stick with it, if you're actually going to experience victory, if you're going to move towards health, you have to set some goals that are clear and measurable. Lose 20 pounds. Okay, but how? But what is my next step? But what do I do with that? Is, is it clear? Uh, kind of. Lose 20 pounds? Like, how long? When? Does that just mean that as long as the scale dips below 20, like one time I made it? Like, how, how do we do this? Drink a glass of water at the beginning of every morning for the next two months. Is it clear? Do I know exactly what I need to do? Is it measurable? Did I drink a glass of water today? Yes. Woo! Let's look forward to tomorrow. No. Okay, why not? How do, how do I course correct? What change do I need to make? 
If we're gonna set these goals, they have to be clear and measurable. Put a time frame on it. Like I said, if we're trying to create a habit, 60 days. What is the one thing that I need to do consistently for 60 days to make this a habit? Uh, I love to go out to eat. Anyone else? I go out to eat too much. Anyone else? Okay. Sometimes I'm kind of like, I hope my wife doesn't ask what I did for lunch. Because I'm like, oh, I don't want to tell her I went out to eat again. You know what I mean? So maybe she thinks I brought a salad in from somewhere and just magicked it up and ate it at the church. I go out to eat too much. So again, everything in me goes, well, too much. We should quit that. So no more going out to eat. I'm not going to make it to Wednesday. I know myself. So what if I went, you know what? I typically three to four times a week, I go out to eat and that's too much. So my, here's my goal for the next six. This isn't actually my goal. I'm just using it as an example. I'm not ready for this step. I'm, I'm back on the water. Okay. <laughs> Put the pen down. A clear and measurable goal would be for the next 60 days, I'm going to go out to eat no more than two times a week. Is it bad to go out to eat? No, I'm just doing it too much. So what would a step towards health be? Again, small steps. I'm going to go out to eat no more than two times a week for the next 60 days. I, now, I'm going to have to pack some lunches. I'm gonna, there's some things that I have to do to be ready for it. But is it clear? Is it measurable? Can I look back at the end of every week and go three times? Two times? Yes, I'm moving in the right direction. Clear and measurable goals. The fifth principle that we need to grab a hold of, and we'll end with this one, is find a sweeter song. Let me explain this one a little bit. Let me go back to the story about Odysseus. In the story of the Odyssey, remember he, he had himself tied to the pole. The men had beeswax in their ears. He took some drastic steps to flee temptation. But there's another story about that same island, the island of the sirens, and it goes like this. But there's a second approach to temptation. It's different from Odysseus's plan and even more crucial to developing true self-control. This approach is depicted in the Argonautica, another Greek epic. In this story, the Argonauts must sail past the same sirens that threatened the sailors in the Odyssey. But they escape their deadly snare with a very different strategy. As they sail past the sirens, they hear the singing, but they have a legendary musician and poet, Orpheus, on board. He draws his lyre, and he plays a louder, more beautiful song, drowning out the siren's song. Enthralled with Orpheus's sweeter song, the sailors pass by in safety. It's an effective strategy, one that doesn't rely on ropes and beeswax. Instead of merely restraining the hand, it aims to capture the heart. Like I said, there's nothing wrong with employing practical tools to avoid temptation. It's wise to anticipate temptation and take proactive steps to avoid giving in. Sometimes we have to lash ourselves to the mast, tighten the ropes, and keep sailing. But ultimately, the best way to avoid sin, the most powerful means of self-control, comes by listening to a sweeter song. For Christians, this means tuning in to God's ultimate purpose for us. It means listening to His voice and obeying His command. It involves desiring and delighting in Him. It requires that, like Paul, we focus on the prize and run with all our strength. Ultimately, that's the best way to drown out the seductive strains of the world and sail safely toward home. Purpose motivates. 
If we're really going to move towards health, again, practical steps, sometimes you have to take some drastic measures. Tie yourself to the pole. But if, if that's all it is, is slapping our hand and making sure that we don't go through with it, we're going to miss out. We have to understand first, what is it about the temptation that has already captured my heart? Is it just the ease of it, of being able to not have to think? And is it the escape that comes from giving in to the temptation? What is it that has captured my heart? And how do I turn to Christ and allow him to captivate me? How do I look for God's purpose in my life to be a motivator? Uh, We've been talking a lot about physical health. And recently, over the last year, I've made some changes, um, tried to make small, consistent changes in my physical health. And here's what has moved me. I love what I do. I have been called to pastor the local church, and I love it. And I want to do it for as long as I can, as fruitfully as I can. And I know too many people that as they get older, the weight comes on, the joints start to ache. I know people that have had to retire out of ministry long before they should have. There's still a lot they have to give. They just physically can't do it anymore. I know too many families that have had to deal with loss probably before it's time because they've just given up on physical health and they've done whatever came easiest. And I've seen the destruction And I look at my family and I go, I want to walk my daughter down the aisle one day. Not having to use a cane, not having to... Look, I could get hit by a bus tomorrow, agreed? But assuming I don't, I want to be able to do the things that God has called me to do as long as possible and as fruitfully as possible. And if that means I have to exercise three times a week, here we go. If that means I have to limit uh, how many times I go out to eat, okay, If that means I have to learn to love apples more than donuts, I'll set the goal. We'll see what happens. (laughs) But there has to be something sweeter drawing me into it. If it's just, look, beach season's coming up, and i got to get bikini ready, it's not going to motivate long. Pizza's too good. My couch is way too comfortable. But if I have this sweeter song that is capturing my heart, God is calling me to do this. And if I'm not healthy, I can't obey. I will miss out on the purpose that God has for me. That is a captivating purpose. Looking at my family and going, I want to continue to experience life with them. I want to meet my grandkids one day. I want to be able to to go hiking with them. Whatever it may be, that is a sweeter song that will draw us through when sometimes that temptation is just so loud, when it's unexpected and I didn't have time to tie myself to the mast, to be able to go, okay, so it's this or potentially bounce my grandkids on my knee. Yeah, I'll go with that one. We have to allow ourselves to be captured by a sweeter song. Sir Alec Patterson says this, and I'll end with this quote. Oh God, help us to be masters of ourselves that we may be servants of others. He was aware of the calling that God had on his life to love and serve those around him. And he said, if I don't gain self-control, self-mastery, I will never be able to live out the call God has on my life. So, oh God, help us to be masters of ourselves that we may be servants of others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, 
this is not just about getting skinny or getting financially healthy or dealing with some things of our past just to say that we did. Uh, this is not about living a happier life. This is about being the people that you have called us to be. This is about being good citizens in the kingdom. This is about moving the kingdom forward. And we cannot do those things apart from health. And we cannot have health apart from self-control. God, as we move into these areas that you may be laying on our hearts, would you through your Holy Spirit draw us in that we can cling to the vine and that the fruit of self-control can be borne out. That we can make the right choices even when it doesn't feel good. That we can make decisions now that make 10 years from now better instead of just feeling good today. Would you do this work in our lives? God, each of us has an area, an arena that we need to press into and it's going to look different in each of these cases. God, we need you to speak clearly to us. And God, may we take that one step, trusting that you're enough. And Lord, we will celebrate with you when that becomes habit and we can see health and we can experience victory. We will give you praise and glory and honor for it. In Jesus' name, amen.